ahead that first slide. Thank you, Charlie. All right. I don't have the clicker, so I don't have control. Oh. Oh, I do have the clicker. I looked around. Turn it on. All right. Great. Thank you. So, uh, earlier this year, Tabitha and I, we were going to go to uh, the Boy Buchanan football game. We are going to go see Caroline March in the, in the show there. We are going to watch the football team. We are going to have a really good time. And uh, before we go, uh, Tabitha, she's putting on her makeup. We're getting in the car. I'm backing out of the driveway. And she goes, does my face look kind of red to you? Look at it. No, you look fine. And uh, she goes, feel very good. My stomach is just like really upset. And I was like, I'm sorry, babe. That's, that's too bad. And uh, it's like, do you, you need anything? And she's like, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So we're driving over there and she's like, my mouth feels funny. And uh, I start joking with her because, you know, sometimes I'll kind of like, you know, overreact to like not feeling good. And I'm like, oh yeah, you probably got like cuticle cancer or whatever. And uh, so we're, we're laughing, we're cutting up and we're, we're getting there. And she's like, I'm all itchy. And uh, we get to the football game. We watch Caroline march in the show. And as she's coming off, Tabitha goes to hug her. And she's got these red whelps, like, all up her arms. And uh, Lisa and Caitlin come to the rescue and whisk Tabitha off to the school. And they, like, give her, like, 18 Benadryl. And uh, we took her back home. And she calls her dad, who's a veterinarian. And, and uh, he tells her, like, hey, do this, do this, do this. And, you know, you probably won't die. Uh, he's very encouraging. Uh <laughs> So uh, here's, here's the thing. Uh, allergies are really kind of a strange thing. Uh, looking into them, you know, we think that, like, you know, it seems odd to some of us that, like, a peanut butter sandwich would be deadly to somebody. Or, or that milk could totally, like, just wreck a few days of some, somebody's life. Um, but allergies are serious, at times deadly even. Uh, they can induce anaphylactic shock and, and you just kind of shut down, you swell up and you suffocate and you die. And I know that's a really chipper subject to follow the EYC comments and the dinosaurs I was showing on the screen there. But uh, allergic reactions are strange because it's our body overreacting to completely neutral Stimulus. There is nothing inherently dangerous about peanuts or red meat or pollen or bee stings. You may like them, you may dislike them, but they're not inherently deadly. It's just your body going, oh no, this is going to kill me. I'm going to die if this thing stays with me any longer. And so our body can have these, these tragic Responses, these tragic overreactions to things that aren't going to hurt us, the things that aren't deadly. And that is very strange to me because in the body's attempt to try and protect us, it kills us from something that's either neutral or good for you. And as scary and strange as that is in the physical sense, it's even scarier in the spiritual sense. You see, we have this, this problem. We have this, uh, this, this battle that, that Paul talks about where we have the, 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 the flesh and the spirit. 
And, and the flesh naturally just kind of overreacts to the things of the Spirit, thinking that, no, this, this thing is bad for me. This is going to kill me. This is going to rob me of what I need. And so we, we push against, we fight against, we protect against things that are good for us, things that are nourishing. And they seem strange or foreign to our, to our minds or, or, or to, our, to our flesh, but God's really doing something in the process. We're going to be looking at three things tonight. We're, we're going to be talking about uh, looking at three sort of vignettes from probably the most, actually, not probably, definitely, the most uh, central story to who we are. We're going to be looking at the crucifixion, looking at three different vignettes, and looking at submission, confession, and sacrifice. Three things that we may push against, fight against, avoid, or neglect, rather than embrace and seek and pursue. Luke chapter 22 would go to and turn to Luke chapter 22 starting in verse 39 and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him and when he came to the place he said to them Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. familiar story. But I think it, it's, it's an important way to, to example for us the idea of submission. See, we have, we have two groups here. We have the apostles on one hand whom Jesus has brought them with him to pray and to support him in his time of need. But they yield to the flesh. They yield to the desires of the body rather than foregoing the physical for the sake of the spiritual. But the reverse of this, we see Jesus. We have him here in the garden. And it's not that Jesus denies what he wants denies what he desires but it's that he puts the will of the father in front of his own will he makes known to God what it is that he would prefer 
and he would prefer to live. He would prefer for the cup to pass from him. But he submits to the will of God. And this is beautiful. Jesus' prayer, as simple as it is, encapsulates what it is to, in many ways, to, to begin to live as Christ. To live as Christ, to live as followers of Christ. It's not that we, we deny who we are or what we desire or, or, or what we feel, but that we put it in submission to God. We put what God seeks for us and desires for us ahead of ourselves. We know what happens next. The cup does not pass from our Christ. And he's delivered over into the hands of the officials. Matthew 26. Starting in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them, saying, I don't know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. And another servant girl saw him. And she says to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of the Nazarene, the, the, of Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, saying, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. That he began to invoke and to swear on himself or to curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, Peter... Peter's struggling something with with something very familiar to us. On the one hand, Peter knows the truth. He knows that he knows Jesus. He loves Jesus. He swore that he would not deny or betray his friend. But he's seen him be arrested. He's seen him being tried. He's seen him being beaten. Now, I don't know what was going on in the mind of Peter at that time, but I I had to imagine it was a great deal of confusion. Here, this is the man that he believes is Christ, the, the son of the living God. And while he may have had an incomplete picture of who the Christ was or who he was supposed to be, whether he thought he was uh, going to be the kind of Christ that he was, or he thought he was going to be, continue to be a great teacher, or whether he thought that he was going to, to gather an army and 
to fulfill the, the sort of messianic destiny that many Jews of his day expected. But I don't think he expected this. I don't think he expected to see his friend being beaten and bloodied and bound before the religious officials. And when it came time to, to own his identity, own who he was, he denied his identity. He gave in to the flesh to protect himself and to, to stave off harm. And when he realized what he had done, it, I think it broke him. And I think that's what happens to us when we deny who we are. Not just that, that we deny Christ. when we deny that, that we are that we're people who struggle that we're people who who fight with specific sin I think a lot of times we're, we're very quick to say oh yeah yeah we all sin we all sin yeah I sin you sin we all sin but we don't put a name on it we keep it general to keep it distant to keep ourselves protected. Mark chapter 14, verse 60. Here we find Jesus before the council and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his, to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus here, I think it's interesting that when the, the council is questioning him, they ask him a number of questions and he, he generally doesn't respond. He's silent. And I, I don't know what your reading of that is, like, you know, his motivation for, for you know, being silent with her. He's just you know, trying to fulfill prophecy by being a, you know, a silent a lamb led to slaughter, or uh, if he had some other motives. Uh, but I, I think that part of his motivation for this uh, is bound up in the kind of questions that they're asking him. 
So they're asking him questions that kind of are, are, are deliberately intended to, to distort the perception of, of the truth. You know, it, it's, it's as if... Um, trying to think of a good example. Uh, you know, it's as if someone were to come to me like, Harrison, so are, are you beating your wife again? And it's like, well, no. You know, it's kind of one of those questions. Well, it's like, I never was, but if you answer yes or no, it, the, the simple answer does not uh, tell the whole truth. Uh, the, the question implies a specific answer, a specific reality. And so when Jesus is asked these questions, he, he, doesn't, he just doesn't answer because they're not questions that are worthy of being answered. Um, within the first century context, there uh, is this sort of... Uh, social structure that we don't really have anymore and one of the things that uh, that has been kind of identified here is that if someone of higher status uh, is being questioned or ridiculed by people of lower status the proper response is to do nothing because it should not be they don't validate the the uh, the attack from beneath. You're, you're above it, and so you don't address it. And so it may be a thing that here, Jesus as Lord, you know, they, can, they can question him, they can ridicule him, but he is above that sort of reproach. But when they ask him about his identity as the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Jesus responds with a very specific and interesting sort of answer. He says, I am, and then he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this is really common in the Gospels when Jesus starts talking about himself as the Son of Man. You see, the, the Son of Man, for those of you who are in the Daniel class on, on Wednesday nights, um, the, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is this really interesting figure that, uh, not to get in too deeply into that, began to be seen as this messianic figure in uh, first century uh, Jewish belief and in the centuries preceding and leading up to this. And so when he refers to himself as the son of man, uh, in Daniel, the son of man is one that is exalted and lifted up and not just given authority over creation, but is also worshipped. And so when he refers to himself as the son of man, there is this implicit statement of, of that he is worthy of worship, that he is on the level with God. And to the high priest, this was blasphemy. And it's what they used to sentence him to death. Jesus knew what would happen if he owned his identity. He knew that his confession would bring him harm. I think this is one of the things that's, that's very powerful about the, the, the concept of confession, that uh, we, we confess our sins, but we also confess that Jesus is Lord. So on the one hand, we think about confession as being something that is for uh, something negative, uh, but on the other hand, we see confession as something uh, that we confess that we're proud of. But the thing is, confession implies consequence. 
if I confess of crime, of sin, there's consequence. There's consequence to sin. There's consequence to, to improper action. Equally so, there is consequence to claiming Christ. There is consequence for Christ in claiming ownership of, of who he is in relationship to the Father. And as a result, it brings him... This is all out of order. <laughs> um, Christ's confession... brings about the cup that he was hoping and praying would pass from him. And so, we read in in John chapter 18, verse 14, we read about how Caiaphas is, is speaking to the Jews and he says that it is expedient that one man should die for the sake of the nation. Uh, And in Mark chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 9, Mark 15, 9, it reads, And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And he, that is Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. And the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for him Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here we see the reaction of the flesh where rather than than seeking ownership owning who we are and owning the 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 chief priests owning the the kind of the, the difficulty they were having with Jesus rather than handling it they scapegoat him rather than dealing with the the apparent issues they were having with their expectations and the reality presented to them the the traditions that they had and the teachings and the practices of Jesus, rather than trying to figure these things out and swear them and, and, and to seek God's wisdom in these things, they assumed they were right. They assumed Jesus was wrong. He was a problem and he had to be dealt with. And so oftentimes the flesh leads us to, to expedience, to, to the most convenient thing uh, that... That, uh, that brings about what we want. You know, we, we justify what we want simply because we want it. 
And we think it is right for us to have it, and we have a way to get it. But in the process, we neglect the truth that to get what we want, we have to put others under heel. The benefit of others, the good of others, has to be sacrificed for our own self-service. And here is one of the most challenging parts of, of this narrative. We see the meaning of true sacrifice. We, we see the true meaning of life in the Spirit. Luke 23. Luke 23, starting in verse 33. They came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And they cast lots and they divided his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you this day, today you will be with me in paradise. The only person in this story that gets what he deserves is the first thief. Think about that. You have the crowd murdering an innocent man. They get forgiveness. You have the innocent man who gets murdered. And you get the, the thief who is guilty, who is being murdered, but then Jesus forgives him. You know, the only guy that gets what he deserves is, is the one guy. And I think that this is powerful. You see, that second thief, I think he, he, he recognizes something very important. He recognizes who Jesus is and who the, the, the proper sort of response one should have. And that is, if he is the Christ, you want relationship with him. Christ has mercy. 
Christ cares. Christ even has compassion on the crowds because they didn't understand. They didn't know. And he asked God to forgive them. Jesus seeks out what is good for others. Jumping into the water. 
and he's swimming for Jesus, and there's this kind of breakfast of fish sort of laid out. And Jesus pulls him aside. After they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said it to him a third time. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter had to own who he was. He had to own what he had done. And that was going to mean submission. That was going to mean confession in front of this probably the same group of men that tried and killed Jesus not many, many months far from this, this time. Peter was going to have to sacrifice. Because when we receive, when we repent and we receive that atonement, that's the only option. You know, we don't we don't obey God to, to get what he offers. I mean, we, we do get baptized and we receive forgiveness and we have our sins washed away. And but I think sometimes we think that if I, if I live a moral life that I'm just good enough, if I'm just the kind of perfect person that I need to be, then after I've put on Jesus, then all this extra stuff is going to be what, what gets me into heaven. Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches putting on Jesus, washing away your sins. And out of the abundance of joy that we have for the grace that Christ has offered us. For that, we respond with all these good things. The good things overflow out of a heart washed clean. A heart made whole by the blood of Jesus. And so that's what leads to our confession that, that we're souls that fall short of God's glory. But that we're redeemed by the free gift of God's grace. And we, and we sacrifice uh, ourselves to the will of God. Paul writes about that in Galatians 3.27 when he talks about putting on Christ in baptism. When we put Christ on, it's not just a figure of speech. When we are washed clean, we are put into the identity of Christ. And as people who have put on the identity of Christ, we do the things of Christ. 
Paul writes about in Romans 12, he talks about the living sacrifice, that the things that we do, the sacrifice that we offer God out of thanksgiving is our lives, is our actions. And God blesses us with all manner of of gifts of grace to to live out the kind of life that, that God has planned for us. And in Ephesians 5.19, Paul talks about submission to one another. I think sometimes we tend to think that, that uh, leadership is for men and submission is for women. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, submit to one another. Everybody submits to everybody. Submission is a Christian virtue. In Ephesians 2.10, or Ephesians 2, 1-10, Paul writes... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In them. Submission, confession, and sacrifice. They cause the flesh to overreact and to think that we're dying, that we're giving up what sustains us and gives us life. My flesh thinks that, that giving in to the urges of the flesh will sustain me, but in the process, it poisons me with selfishness and leaves leaves others starving for love. My, my flesh denies my confession and identity and, and fortifies itself with this thin facade that looks nice. It, it, it looks safe. It looks strong. But it's lie. It's weak. And it's flimsy. And it's fake. My flesh believes... I'll get what I want by tipping the scales in my favor. But that's not Christ. Life in the Spirit is submission. And that brings us freedom from the chains of fleshly desire. Life in the Spirit is confession of truth. It's the acknowledgement that the flesh... what the flesh believes will endanger me. I I struggle with spiritual 
physical, emotional, and social brokenness. We all do. But my confession is that Jesus is my Lord, and while I live, I'm going to struggle. But he's going to make it right. Life in the Spirit is a life of sacrifice. But it's also a sacrifice of life. In putting on Christ, we dedicate ourselves to making him alive in ourselves through our actions. Have you heard what the Savior offers? I know that you have. Do you believe it? I know that you do. Do you want to lay down that weight? I think that you do. Do you want to take refuge in the truth of our confession? Do you want to put Christ on? If you do, we love you. And we're here for you. So let's stand in the presence of our Lord.